open your copy of the Word of God to Matthew chapter 11. We begin this morning at verse 20 as we continue our sequential exposition of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 20, is where we find ourselves uh, this Lord's Day morning. The verses follow, reads as follows. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. I'm using as a subject for these verses I just read in your hearing Words of woe. Words of woe. Jesus' attitude toward unrepentant people is revealed in the text that I just read in your hearing. They are words of judgment. Often Jesus is pictured by people as one who is only meek and mild. One who seems to be quite interested in gathering everybody around the proverbial campfire to sing Kumbaya. Jesus is meek and mild, but that's not all that he is. The biblical portrait includes his stern, even strong words of denunciation of people who refuse his mercy, spurn his grace, and reject his offer of salvation. Now, the verses before us are not in isolation. There's a context in which we find this text that we just read. It's a, there is a connection with the previous verses. You may recall in our last sermon that we gave on this last week, in verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. They say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus was quoting there in that verse that I just read what people were saying about him falsely. And they refused to believe in him. They didn't like his style of ministry. They repudiated him. And they did that by saying things about him that were a bald-faced lie. Now in verse 20, we find the denunciation. That is our heading. Matthew tells us of Jesus' holy fury. He uses, Matthew does, the word denounce, which translates a Greek word, which is a strong verb that conveys indignation. Jesus was indignant toward the cities in which he did most of the miracles because they refused to repent. Jesus was angry, a holy anger. It was justifiable. They had no excuse for refusing him. He did miracles. You'll notice there, Matthew tells us, 
Literally, the word miracles is, in the original, powers. They were divine displays of divine power to the inhabitants of the cities that Jesus denounced. Those miracles were the evidence of God's presence. They were the manifestation of him working in their midst. The multiple displays of the supernatural acts did something significant for them. They disclosed who he was. They identified him as the divine Messiah and their king. And you know it's plural, miracles. There are many of them. I just said multiple. They were evidence that Jesus had been sent by the Father. In fact, Jesus said on another occasion in chapter 5, verse 36 of the Gospel of John, these words, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. The miracles or the works demonstrate that the Father, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, had dispatched Jesus from heaven to be there doing those things to redeem them. Pointing to the reality of who he is. In fact, the miracles were designed not simply to heal people, not simply to rid them of some physical problem that they possessed, but a higher purpose was that it would demonstrate who Jesus is and induce them to repent, to repent of their sins. They refused to repent. Though the truth was uh, amply presented to them as to who he is and the call of repentance was given by our Lord Jesus, they steadfastly, adamantly refused to repent of their sins. You know what that means? They chose to remain in their sins and in rebellion against God. To do so does create divine fury. They disobeyed the command to repent and believe the gospel. They had this marvelous display of grace. And they said, no. Divine anger burns against the unrepentant. So we have the denunciation. That's in verse 20. That's what Matthew t lets us know that Jesus is doing. Then he shows us how he denounced them. And we'll call this denunciation in the second heading the examples of comparative judgment. The examples of comparative judgment. Verse 21. Jesus' words were not only ones of denunciation, but of woe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe can mean pity and sorrow, but also the doom of divine judgment to come. A form of the word woe is found in the Old Testament in a number of places and is used as an exclamation of, quote, how greatly one will suffer. greatly will one suffer. When the woe is pronounced, that's what was being said. Woe is also employed in Revelation 8, verse 13. 
three times it's used to announce the judgment that was impending for the earth dwellers those people who are on the earth earth dwellers and the book of revelation refers to people who refuse christ and refuse the truth refuse the gospel but receive antichrist they're the ones who will be there during the tribulation period that is coming. And so in Revelation 8, 13, three times the word woe is used. In that period of time before the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, the angelic announcements, woe, woe, woe. Jesus utilized the word woe. Not only in our text that we're looking at, but he, he used it elsewhere. He used it eight times in reference to scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 29. He excoriates them for their hypocrisy. And he starts off, woe. These scribes and Pharisees, those who were steeped in religion, those who were steeped in things of God, at least externally, and he says to them, woe, woe. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Here in verse 21 of our text, our Lord uses the word twice regarding the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Chorazin, what was that? <laughs> it's a small village near Capernaum. Small village, small number of people. But Jesus had done miracles there. Small little village. Bethsaida, where is that? It's close as well. And it was the hometown of the disciples, Philip, Andrew, and Peter. And in this comparative judgment, look what Jesus says here. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon, in contrast to Chorazin and Bethsaida, which were Jewish cities, Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities. They were seaport cities on the Phoenician coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, you need to understand something about Tyre and Sidon. The two cities epitomized evil in the Old Testament. Both Isaiah 23 and Ezekiel 28 prophesied the judgments that fell on them because of their evil. They were commercial cities. They were wealthy cities. They were wicked cities, idolatrous cities. All manner of evil was there in those cities. These Gentile cities, God destroyed because of their wickedness. Now, when it talks about the cities being destroyed, we may think of only the infrastructure, and that was part of it. In fact, Tyre was laid waste when God finally brought complete destruction to that city, Tyre. It was laid waste in 332, 332, 332 B.C. by Remember Alexander the Great, the world conqueror uh, from Greece? He went there and laid the place waste, just as God predicted in the book of Daniel. Not only was it infrastructure 
laid waste. By the way, it became a place of, um, for fishing nets. Fishermen there because God wiped it out. But he's not talking just simply about the physical structure, the infrastructure of the place. It's the people as well, the inhabitants. They were destroyed. They lost their life, and then they went and lost their souls. But now everybody knew that listened to Jesus when he said that what he says in verse 21 about Tyre and Sidon, they deserve what they got. But Jesus says they were repented. As deeply sinful as Tyre and Sidon were, if the miracles at Chorazin and Bethsaida were privileged to experience had happened in those two wicked Gentile cities, they were repented in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes were public signs of repentance. It was a visual picture of repentant sorrow. You might wonder, you've heard that phrase, sackcloth and ashes. People even use that contemporaneously, uh, and yet many of us don't know what is sackcloth. What are sackcloth and ashes? Well, here they are. Sackcloth was a dark, rough cloth made from goat hair. The hair cloth symbolized the distress of one felt inside. Ashes were a reminder of man's mortality. It was from ashes that we came. That's why they say at the funeral, ashes to ashes, dust to dust at the graveside. We're dust and ashes. That's what Abraham said to the Lord when he's approaching him about Sodom and interceding for his nephew Lot. Ashes reveal the ruin within the heart. What they would do, they'd put on the sackcloth the garment, scratch them, was distressful, but they'd also sprinkle on their head the ashes. Now, there's something significant here beyond the definition of sackcloth and ashes. You notice we have to document this fact. Jesus said, if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred to you, they would have repented. Let me tell you something about Jesus. In his omniscience, he knows all things actual and potential. He knows what happened in history. He knows what will happen in the future. He knows it down to the minutest detail because he's omniscient. But not only does he know actual events of history that have happened and will happen, he also knows contingencies. What would happen if certain circumstances prevailed? He can tell you what would happen to you if certain things had been done in your life. You have no idea, but he knows how you were responding. And he says, if they'd had those miracles done in their day, they would have given up their wickedness, immorality, all of that, and they would have served Yahweh. It's the omniscience of the Lord who knows everything. So he exercises divine prerogative to pronounce this reality to his hearers there uh, listening to him as he denounced the cities and offered the comparative judgments. Now, perhaps the theological question would be asked, why didn't the Lord provide miracles to the pagans entire in sight and so that they would repent? 
answer is this. God does not owe revelation to anyone. He is not obligated to give the fallen sinners grace. You do understand that, don't you? If it were obligated, it's not grace. So he is not obligated to give to fallen men, sinful men, men who rebelled against him, the revelation that could save them. If you're obligated to do so, to withhold it would mean he was unjust. There's no injustice with God. To say so is blasphemous. Now, in the book of Romans, you can look there with me if you'd like. Chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 14. The elective purpose of God with individuals is a topic here. And what it reveals is something about the, the character of God and his sovereignty. God presents himself as he is, not as we wish him to be. Some people might suggest, well, my God would never do that. You got yourself an idol. If your idea of God doesn't conform with the revelation that God has given us in Scripture, that idea of God in your mind is idolatry. It's not the God of the Bible. It's the God of your own making. And a lot of people, Christians among them, have made up who they think God is. Now, God chose Jacob, verse 13 of Romans 9. He didn't choose Esau. It was an elective choice, a sovereign choice. Somebody said, well, that ain't fair. Well, shall we say then, there is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. God is just. To assert that he is an unjust is to blaspheme his character. Verse 15. Paul draws on what God told Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I, have, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Do you see that? God is saying, is saying, I decide sovereignly upon whom I will display my mercy and my compassion. I'm God. You're a creature. Who? Doesn't depend on man. Mercy is sovereignly dispensed. Michael Horton writes, quote, God can do whatever he wishes with his mercy since everybody deserves wrath. End of quote. He's right. You know what God owes us? Justice. <laughs> you ever thought, have you ever thought about that? You know, we think we're so wonderful that God owes us. No, he doesn't. 
He owes us justice. But if you're a Christian this morning, you didn't get what you deserve. You got what you didn't deserve, mercy and grace. That's why he didn't do it in tired sight. Sovereign decision, no. I'm going to give them justice. That their sins have earned for them. That they deserve. That's what God does with his creatures. Because he's God. As we like to say, all by himself. Amen. Ain't asking you for counsel. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? That's what he said to Job, Job 38. Who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? Remember when God said that to Job? And after God took him through all of that and explained to him, Job, you can't even understand the functioning of the natural world. How are you going to tell me how to run the government of salvation and all the rest. Job says, you know, I repent and sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> After that, that encounter, I realized I'm just a creature. You're the Lord. Let me shut my mouth. See, the problem with us is that we want to elevate man. And when you elevate man, you bring God down elevate him. He's the sovereign. Now in verse 22 of Matthew 11 God gives justice but God is just. God is just in his dispensing of judgment. Nevertheless I say to you it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you, Chorazan and Bethsaida. Tolerable refers to the degree of punishment to which sinners will be sentenced on the day of judgment. That's what it means. And we have to take, as we do, God's word, face value, tolerable, because the human thought is, how can it be tolerable? You're in hell. But in somehow, some way, for people who will be in hell, uh, depending on their knowledge and their deeds, hell will be more tolerable for other than for other people. And the reason is God by nature is just. He judges according to the amount of knowledge and truth that people are exposed to and their deeds as well. So people in hell or the lake of fire will not suffer to the same degree. There are degrees of punishment in that place. You know, I like to uh, use some figures from history to help uh, explain this. Um, Adolf Hitler. His punishment is going to be greater than the garden variety pagan who refused Christ because of his deeds. The amount of knowledge that a person has, exposure to the truth, 
be the basis for their judgment, the degrees of punishment. And we can see this in Luke chapter 12. You'd like to go with go there with me. I, I want to share this with you. Luke chapter 12, verse 46. And we'll just run through this fairly quickly. Twelve forty-six. Luke chapter 12. Have you all found that? I keep hearing those pages turn. I like that you people believe in looking it up. I don't blame you. I wouldn't just... There was somebody visiting for me, remember, and one of them told me standing right here that I told them, always check out what the Bible says. And he said, he has remembered that from this day. From that day, I told him, that's good. Do it. Be a Berean. Luke chapter 12. This is in connection with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, readiness is the idea. And it's, of course, those who aren't ready because of their uh, spiritual condition of rejection of him, then uh, they're going to experience punishment. And so this is where we derive this further understanding of uh, degrees of punishment. Verse 46, uh, the, in this parable, the master of the slave, uh, that slave will come on a day, talking about what he does in verse 45, you can read it later, uh, when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will, get this, cut him in pieces. This is metaphorical language. It's pretty graphic, but that's what it is. And assign him a place with the unbelievers. Unbelievers, the place of unbelievers, that's not a metaphor. That is hell. It's the reality. Unbelievers. But you'll notice, can you imagine the severity and the pain of cut him in pieces? Can you just think about it? boom, boom, we're being chopped up. Like uh, with a butcher and he's got a cleaver. That kind of suffering that this individual um, will experience. Verse 47. And that slave, it's a different one, who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. Do you detect the difference? The first one, he's cut up. He's assigned with them believers. This one will be assigned with them believers. Jesus didn't have to repeat it because it's the same idea. And so here's the deal. He will receive many lashes. Many lashes is not as bad as being cut in pieces. It's not as severe. He knew his master's will and he didn't get ready. He didn't act in accord with his will. He was disobedient. He knew the truth and refused it. Verse 48, a portion. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds there were deeds as well. His flogging will not be as severe as slave number two. 
notice these words of Jesus. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to him they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more. These words in verse 48, the B portion, provide the basis for the differing degrees of punishment in hell. Here we have it. Directly related to their knowledge of the truth. And is further explicated in Revelation 20, their deeds. So in a way that's beyond our comprehension, but a way that is true, people in hell will suffer differently in terms of their punishment for their sins, unbelief, number one, and their deeds, all of that, as the divine mind calculates how to do it, but it be done justly. And we see that it's just. Uh, may I remind you, Jesus said this. Jesus said this. A lot of times people, as I said in the beginning, as my little introduction, that people want to think of Jesus only as some kind of soft-spoken, oh, wimpy-eyed. No, 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 no. May I say this about Jesus? May I inter- inter- interject this? Two times. The beginning of his ministry, end of he went into uh, the temple and cleared it out. Turned over tables. He didn't play. With God and Jesus, that's why you need to have the whole Bible. Because if you don't understand, you'll have a false idea who Jesus is and a false idea who God is. Because he's told us, so you've got to find out, what does he say? How does he see things? Thank you, sir. He's not done. He's announcing those cities, specifying it here in verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? The, the form of the question in the original language anticipates no. Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters during his ministry. And the people in Capernaum, they had this self-deceived notion that they would be exalted to heaven because they were self-righteous. They were people who were decent, synagogue-going people. But they rejected the Son of God. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're not going to be exalted to heaven. That's not what's going to happen to you, you inhabitants. Rejected the Son of God. Because they were self-righteous, they, they sought to establish their own righteousness. This is what uh, people will do. They will seek to uh, get into heaven their way. May I say to people like that, that's not the way. That's the way the Jews did it, and Paul had to write about that in Romans chapter 10. He says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he was praying for their salvation. In verse 2, he says, For I testify that uh, about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according, in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And 
Now, the Jews, in their knowledge, had an intellectual awareness of God's law, the demands that he makes on people, but they lacked spiritual knowledge because they didn't have a relationship with him savingly, a relationship that produces humility and holiness. Self-righteous people think somehow they can earn their way. I, I can do it. I, I can get in heaven because I, I got some things I'm doing and I know God's going to accept that. So I'm going to work my way in. Jesus said, if anybody like that who saw the miracles demonstrated, no, no, you need a Messiah, Savior. You're not going to be exalted to heaven. In verse 23 of Matthew 11, you can look there again. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. See, they're going to descend to Hades, Jesus says. Hades is a general term for the place of the dead, but being contrast, contrasted here with heaven. So it can only mean hell, ultimately like a fire. Sodom. Sodom? And Sodom? It would have remained to this day? <laughs> can you imagine upright, synagogue-going people who thought they kept God's law and they only did it externally and they thought, oh, we're going to heaven and Jesus said, no, 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 you're not. You're going to descend into hell. In fact, if Sodom had had the opportunity you have to see my miracles, that city would remain to this very day. Sodom doesn't remain to this day. In fact, uh, Sodom uh, archaeologists say it's buried at the south end of the Dead Sea. Sodom, by the way, is a byword for evil. You'll read in the Old Testament, you have. As you read through the Old Testament, you hear uh, the word Sodom is brought up because it's a byword for evil. It's bad it was. Sodom, th that name has been given to homosexuality, sodomy. You remember what happened there in, in Sodom in Genesis chapter 19. God went there, Christ went there to investigate, and the angels went and got Lot out of there so it could wipe the city off the map. It's a wicked city. Very wicked city. In fact, uh, when I was some years and years ago, which is amazing, I think about this often. I have a friend who's a preacher pastor and, um, evangelist he'd come to our city um, and he would uh, he preached a sermon once um, about Sodom S Sodom and Gomorrah all over again and he was talking about um, this country and that's about 20 some odd years ago or more than that I wish I could talk to him what do you think now May I say this? Homosexuality is a sin. We have in our, our country this growing acceptance of this deviant lifestyle. We don't hate them. We give them the gospel. Because that's what they need. 
but don't affirm them in their lifestyle. Tell the truth. Tell them in a loving manner and tell them there is a Savior for sinners. The same Savior that saves adulterers and thieves and liars and hypocrites saves homosexuals. Amen. But tell them the truth. Because they need the Lord. They, were, they, they, they too were blinded by, their, are blinded by their sin as we once were. As we once were. Now, Sodom. But the iniquity there, the evil there, uh, to show you <laughs> this a little bit, as Jesus makes the comparison, Second Peter, chapter two, verse six says this. Um, he's really talking about God's judgment on the wicked, false teachers, and uh, the fallen, the angels who sinned back in Genesis chapter six, and then in verse uh, six of Second Peter, two, he says this. And if, and he did, condemn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Let me say to you, Sodom is an example for people who live ungodly lives that God will judge. He did it to them, do it to people now. Jude, he joins in. Jude 7 says this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them since they in the same way as these talking about the angels in verse 6 who left their domain indulged in gross immorality and went after a strange flesh homosexuality is what's being referred to there are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire right now people who were judged at that point in Sodom and Gomorrah. They not only lost their life physically, they're now presently, even as I speak, enduring eternal punishment. Now, notice a couple of things it says here. Um, It'd be more tolerable, verse 24 of in Matthew 11. For the land of Sodom than for Capernaum. Whoa. As wicked as Sodom was, it'll be better for them in terms of the degree of punishment than for the people in Capernaum. Why? Because the people of Capernaum, they saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, and they saw his miracles. Greater accountability for what they know. And their eternal punishment is going to be greater. And you know, some pe the people in Sodom are going to be better off than some people in America. Well, are you serious? Yes. Because in this country, just as it was in the New Testament, there are people who heard about Jesus, heard sermons about Jesus. They've had people witness them about Jesus. 
and they went on their merry way and they're going to go to hell and they're going to have all that knowledge going to be in hell and you say where do you get that that's so personal how can you apply that I'm glad you asked Matthew 10 remember when the Lord sent his disciples out with the gospel to preach And in verse 14, he says, Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. And then look what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. It's pretty clear, is it not? Those who reject Christ that will be the price that they will pay. Now, let me explain to you further why it's so important because of the reality of who Jesus is to reject him. I mean, that's, that's a sin that one should not want to commit or stay in their sin. Hebrews chapter 10. Stay in that sin. You don't want to do that. Matthew uh, Hebrews, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. says this. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God as regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? Notice the words, how much severer punishment you think he will deserve who held Christ the son of God in contempt serious business to reject Jesus Christ the word the day of judgment the bottom of the verse Jesus mentioned verse 22 as well I purposely overlooked it until this point the day of judgment refers to the great white throne judgment Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 the great white throne judgment sitting on that throne there on that fateful awful day for unbelievers will be none other than Jesus Christ the father's given him all judgment he will be the presiding judge and he will hand down the sentences for those who rejected him And for some, as awful as hell will be, it will be more tolerable than for others. Believers, this is what we need to do. We need to mimic Jesus in our evangelism of the lost. Don't lie to people, tell them, Jesus, fix all your failures. You have a little trouble here, a little trouble there, he's going to fix it. That's not the gospel. Don't talk to them about felt needs. No. Tell them about their real need. They need forgiveness. They need to have their sins forgiven. Let them know that Jesus Christ is the only one that can deliver them from their sin and the wrath to come. And this is what you need to do. Be like Jesus. Mimic him. Tell them that judgment is coming. Let them know that rejecting Jesus has personal, eternal consequence. 
don't let them think that their indifference, their rejection won't matter. It does. It matters forever. They die in their sin. Mimic Jesus. Call them to him. But tell them if they refuse him, they die in their sins. Well, how awful their future will be. The stakes are immense. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've heard truth that if you refuse and die without Christ, the truth you heard today, you will be held accountable for. We invite you to give your life to Christ. Escape the coming judgment. Escape the wrath to come. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus who is clear, unmistakable, direct, giving us reality. God saves sinners. Deliver them from your own wrath by your own grace. And help us as believers to be faithful to, to testify to the reality of who Christ is. And the need for sinners to repent and believe on him. We pray you do it for your glory and for the needs of the saints, of the sinners who need to become saints. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.